The well is an ordinary place that takes on extraordinary meaning through encounters with Jesus. Join Father Anthony Messer from St. Timothy and St. Athanasius Church in Arlington, Virginia, in search of transformation, healing, revival, and refreshment. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Well here at STSA. It's great to see so many people here today. I see we've got a lot of guests joining us today. We're happy to have you. Thank you for joining us over there in Leesburg. I hope you guys are having a great Sunday as well. Or for those who are just watching from the comfort of their own homes, we always say about The Well that it is an ordinary place where extraordinary things happen. That's what we always say, an ordinary place where extraordinary things happen. Because we, obviously, we're an ordinary place. We don't have our own church building yet. So we're just normal places. But we pray extraordinary things happen. And I'm especially praying that today. And I hope that you will say that little short prayer in your heart as well, that God would do something extraordinary today. Because today we're going to wrap up our series on the tabernacle. And we are going to talk about the culmination of the tabernacle. The thing that we've been leading up to this whole time, which is the Holy of Holies. We're going to go to the deepest part of that tabernacle. And what we're going to discover there is the solution without even knowing you. I don't know you in Leesburg. I don't know you here in Arlington. I don't know everyone who's watching this, but I know something. I know the solution to all your problems. How about that as a statement to opening with? Okay. I know the solution to all your problems. The solution to all your problems is the presence of God in your life. And some of you think, actually, that's the problem. <laughs> no. I believe that the solution to all your problems in life is the presence of God in your life. Because if we have God present, manifest, tangible in our life, if God is real in our life, if we have that intimacy and that relationship and that connection with him, then just kind of like the song that we just sang, that there's no, there's no obstacle that we can't face. There's no challenge that's too hard. There's no problem, no trial. Like I feel lost. When I have him, I'm not lost. I feel empty. When I have him, I'm not empty. When I, I feel confused, when I have him, I have clarity. I have him, no problem I can't solve. I don't have him, no problem that I can deal with. I have him, nothing is too big. I don't have him, everything seems insurmountable. So we're going to talk about how to achieve that presence of God. Not how to achieve it, as much as how God has laid for us a path. For those who are just joining us, you missed the first three parts. We're talking about the tabernacle, which was this Old Testament tent-looking thing, which God said, build this tabernacle because this will be my way of dwelling with you. This will be my presence amongst you. So we're sitting here and saying, we want you, God. We want you, God. We want you, God. Well, the good news is the tabernacle teaches us is that God is saying the same thing to us. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. It says, if you want me so badly, then make, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. The good news for us is it's not a one-way seeking. Actually, sometimes it is a one-way seeking from him to us. But we know that he's searching for us and seeking to be with us. So if today you will pray in your heart that God, I want you to be manifest, present in my life. Like I want you to be active in the day to day. I want to have that connection with you. Then I believe that God will reveal to us a path to get there. And we're going to see that when we enter into the Holy of Holies. This expression, Holy of Holies, means the ultimate, the most sacred place. This is for us, okay, the Holy of Holies. This was like before uh, Christ's incarnation into this world, before Christ came and, and took flesh from the Virgin Mary. This was God on earth, the presence of God. And we're going to see today how we can have that presence of God in our life. Now, before I go any further into it, you should be asking yourself a question. 
right off the bat. I'm sitting here and saying, presence of God, have God with me, presence of God. You should be asking yourself, isn't he already with me? Like, isn't God already here? Like, why do I have to do anything? Like, is God with me or is God not with me? Who say God is with me? Who say God is not with me? <laughs> There's a difference between, we're going to differentiate it this way. I'm going to call it the omnipresence of God versus the manifest presence of God. Omnipresence versus manifest presence. What's the difference? Omnipresence means that God is everywhere. Of course, God is everywhere. There's no place that God isn't. But it's just like when the incarnation, the first time, was God existing on earth before the incarnation? Of course, because God exists everywhere. Nothing exists outside of God. But the incarnation was a manifestation, was God became tangible. God became touchable. God became real as a real part of their day-to-day -day life, like in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. So yes, God is always with us all times everywhere. Of course, well, no, one, no one could say anything other than that. But in the same way that at a point in time, he took flesh to be tangible, manifest. He wants to do the same thing right now. And that's what we're talking about. Because you know, like I know, that even though God is present everywhere at all times, I want to ask you to raise your hand because I know everyone raised their hand. Some people probably raised their feet if I asked this question. How many times? We know God is with us. We know God is with us, but he feels like a million miles away, doesn't he? There are times that he just feels like, yeah, we know he's there somewhere. He's probably there. You probably got him or you got him. But for me, a million miles away. That's what we're going to try to talk about here today. Because the key thought of this series that we've been talking about since week one is very simple. That God's desire isn't just obedience from us. It's intimacy with us. God's desire isn't just obedience from us. Not saying obedience is important. Obedience is important, but it's a means to an end, not the end in and of itself. God wants us to obey his commandments, his law, as a means to achieve intimacy, communion, fellowship with him. So that's what we're going to look at here today. Who's excited for our message? I'm excited for our message. I don't care if you are or not. I keep myself excited either way. Let's go look at the tabernacle. Let's go from the outside in because today we're going to the deepest part. If you've been following, we've been going like a progression. This is a picture of what it looks like. We started in the outer area. We call it the outer courtyard. That's section one. Who could go in the outer courtyard? Anybody. All the children of Israel could go in the outer courtyard. And that consisted of three pieces of furniture, so, sort of. First, we learned about the gate and the gate taught us that there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son, that's through Jesus Christ. It's only one way in. Big perimeter, only one door. Fire codes, not existent back then. Number two, we saw the bronze altar. And we said, as soon as you, why there's only one gate? Because as soon as you walk into God's presence, the first thing, none shall appear before me empty-handed. It's sacrifice and it's offering. That's the first step in an intimacy and connection with God. And then we saw right behind it, okay, it's kind of small in the picture there, it's a bronze laver. And the bronze laver was like a basin of water where they washed, the priest washed after the sacrifice because the sacrifice was bloody and guts and, and organs flying everywhere. So they would wash in there. And that obviously that washing reminds us, it points us to what here in the church today? Baptism, okay? And then after we have entered that gate, made our sacrifice, washed in the water, then we can enter into the tent which is also called the tabernacle. We said the tabernacle is a name for the whole compound, but also that particular tent. And that tent is divided into two parts, the holy place and then the holy of holies or the most holy place. So the holy place was not for everyone. It was only for who? Priests. Very good. And that taught us that in order to go deeper into the holy place, there's an element of set apart, of consecration. Back then you couldn't be a priest. It was chosen. You, you had no choice. But today it's about 
Who wants to consecrate their life to God? And that can be all of us. Do we want intimacy with God? You'll never have intimacy with God without consecration to God. And in, the, in that, that first section, in the holy place, there was three items. Who remembers any of those three items? They remind us of the priesthood of Christ. There was three things that Christ did. Okay, or many things that he did, but three, what were the three items in there? Who knows any of them? Shout it out. Who? The golden lampstand. Very good, because Christ was the light of the world. Very good. Other side of the golden lampstand was what? Table of showbread, because Christ was the bread of life. And directly in front was the altar of incense, the golden altar, altar of incense, because Christ was the great high priest, and Christ was the one who offered intercession for the whole world. Oh, I got a picture right here. Sorry. That's the trivia is more fun than the picture anyway. Okay. So you had the light of the world, the bread of life, and then you had the altar in front. And what we remember inside there is that the goal is not just to receive those things, but again, we are joining Christ in oneness so that we are consecrated to be the same thing. He said, I'm the light of the world. Then he said, you are the light of the world. He said that he's the bread of life. And then he sent us to be the salt of the earth and to nourish people. And same with the intercession to pray. So now we've entered the outer courtyard, entered into the holy place. Now it's time to go across that scary curtain that separates us from our destination, the Holy of Holies. And there's only one item, sort of, inside there. It's one item, but it's two items that are connected and never set apart. Let's read about it. First, read about the first item. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 10. Then they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. So it's made of ark, an ark made of wood, but overlaid with gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it. You shall make a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Why did everything have rings and poles? Because like us here at SDSA, everything was portable. They didn't have their final home building, so they had to be able to, to, to pack up on a moment's notice. Like the, the tabernacle didn't stay stationary. It was here today. They were going, it was in the wilderness as they were journeying toward the promised land. So they had their setup team just like us. So God made it easy for the setup team. He said, put poles. Actually, we should have thought of that with all this stuff, okay? We should, they put poles. They would pick it up, carry it, drop it, okay? And then, so, so everything was that way. They're portable. It wasn't until the temple that they became permanent. Continue the passage. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. So it was a wooden box, roughly four feet by two feet by two feet. Okay, so that kind of gives you the dimensions. Okay, four by two by two. Inside it was three items, but only one of them was actually commanded by God right here. Two other items got added later. Inside it, the God commanded was what? The commandments. Okay, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. You should put in the Ark of the Testimony, which I will give you. Okay, so inside was the Ten Commandments. Later on, it added the pot of manna and also the rod of Aaron. So you can think of the Ark of the Covenant in a way, you can think of it kind of like the Library of Congress. Okay, so like, it's where you store the most important things in your nation's history, like your national treasures. That's where they put it right there. But its main function was none of these things. Its main function was to carry what was on top of it. And what's on top of it was something called the mercy seat. And we'll read about that in a second, but I just want to point out something. The mercy seat was where God appeared on top of this wooden box. The mercy seat, we always think of St. Mary when we think of the mercy seat. Why? Because St. Or 
the, what we think of, sorry, when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, not the mercy seat, we think of the Ark of the Covenant as St. Mary. Why? Because she was where God appeared on top of her. God appeared through her. That's where the Ark was, the wooden box, and on top is where God appeared. She brought the presence of God into the world. And if you look at it, we'll see a minute with the mercy seat. The mercy seat is going to be gold, but this Ark was wood overlaid with gold. Who wants to guess what do you think wood is symbolic of versus gold? Wood is symbolic of humanity, okay? Because wood is something that's like a, a thing, okay? But then it was wood overlaid with gold. So why is that St. Mary? First, it was a special kind of wood that did not decay. And that reminds us of her purity, okay? Which even though she gave birth, she was a mystery that she was a virgin who gave birth. And she was the, gold, was the wooden box, but overlaid with gold within and without. That's what we say in our midnight praises. That she was, you two, O Mary, are clothed with the glory of his divinity within and without. Also, it reminds us when the angel came to her and said, you, okay, are going to bear the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. So that's the wood covered with the gold. But then the most important thing, whether it's St. Mary or the Ark, the most important thing of the Ark was what happened on top of the Ark which is the mercy seat. We'll read about that, starting in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Notice no wood here, just pure gold, because this is just divinity, no humanity. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. There I will meet with you. That's the most important sentence. There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. So you have the mercy seat, and then you have the ark. Technically, they're two pieces. They're two separate things. One's wood covered with gold, one's just gold. But they were always together. They were never separated from, from each other because each symbolized kind of sort of different things. The ark, the wooden box at the bottom, would symbolize the judgment of God. Why the ark was the judgment of God? Because if you opened the ark and looked inside, what would you see? You'd see the law and the Ten Commandments. And how did you do keeping those Ten Commandments? Not very good. So the ark reminds us, the ark shouts at us, you deserve death. You deserve judgment. You deserve nothing good from God because God gave you these things and you broke them all. But thank God for the cover. Thank God that on top of it is the mercy seat. Because the mercy seat turns the throne of judgment into the throne of mercy. And that's why, okay, Amy was up here earlier and she was talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, is that when they opened it, there was a group of people, I think it was in 1 Samuel somewhere, of Beth Shemesh, okay, I think it's how it's pronounced, Beth Shemesh, which if you know, uh, uh, like Arabic, it, there's a lot of similarities between like the Hebrew and the Arabic, so Beth Shemesh means the house of the sun, okay, Shems, Shemesh, okay, anyway. They tried to open the ark and look inside, and what happened? They died instantly. Everything with the ark is you die instantly. That's the automatic answer, okay? If the question is, what happened if you broke any of the rules, you died. Okay, that was just quick, okay? There was, the legal code is very easy, okay? This equals death. And they removed it because that reminds us exactly what I'm saying. Is that without mercy, we got no shot. Without mercy, 
We got no shot. All there is is judgment. So that's why the combination of the ark and the mercy seat is a perfect picture of Christ. Because Christ was, as it says in John chapter 1, it talks about how the law came through Moses. What came through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus is the perfect picture of grace and truth. The truth of the ark, the grace of the mercy seat. Combined together. Can't separate them. You separate them, you're in trouble. But together, that's exactly who Jesus is. And did you know, okay, follow me here. The word mercy seat appears in the New Testament, sort of. St. Paul talks about it, sort of. And the reason why I'm saying sort of because I'm going to show you a passage up on the screen that doesn't use the word mercy seat in English. But the same word that is translated mercy, the same Hebrew word, mercy seat, is translated slightly differently in the New Testament sometimes. Sometimes it's translated as mercy seat, but sometimes, usually it's translated as a word I'm about to show you up here on the screen. Just stick with me right here. Okay, you'll follow me. Being just, Romans 3, 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Okay, that's the translation in most Bibles. Some Bibles say expiation. I'll explain the difference in a second. That's the word mercy seat. Whom God sent forth as a propitiation or expiation by his blood, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Just looking at the word without looking up, the, if you don't know what propitiation or expiation or mercy, what do you think that word means? Like, just look at it, and you see they're just trying to get the context of it. What it means, being justified freely by his grace, something was set forth as a blank by his blood that led to all the sins being committed, being uh, passed over. The word that this is describing is atonement. What this is saying, propitiation or expiation, is means that there was a problem, there was something that was broken, and then all of a sudden, it was fixed. And we know, because we understand the full picture, that what was broken wasn't necessarily a law, wasn't necessarily a command. What was broken was a relationship. There was a break, there was a separation in the relationship. So then all of a sudden, it's restored, it's fixed. Now the difference between the pro and the ex, propitiation and expiation, talks about the difference in how it was solved. Okay, and some say it was solved this way and some believe it was solved this way. That's, that's semantics for another time that I'm not really trying to hear to talk about. But the important thing is that what this word means is everything is good. All good in the hood, as the kids say these days. Everything is fixed. There was a problem. Now the problem is gone. But here's the important part that that word teaches us. That the way the problem was solved wasn't abracadabra hocus pocus. Wasn't magic. Sometimes that's we have a wrong idea because for us, okay, we have the sacrament of confession. We believe in the forgiveness of sins and we have repent. We, sometimes we think, that forgiveness means I sin, and it's like, maybe you've seen this analogy before, okay? I'm not saying it's horrible, but it's not great. It's like a whiteboard. And every time you sin, it's like a mark. And then every time you repent, it just erases it. The problem with it, like I get it and it's great, like it, that's great. The problem with is it makes forgiveness seem like abracadabra, hocus pocus, magic. Or sins went into never, never land with Peter Pan or whatever it may be. The truth is, is that every sin that has been atoned for and has been solved was solved by a person. And a person is Jesus Christ. It's not abracadabra, it's not hocus pocus. 
He, as it says in the scripture, behold the Lamb of God who carries the sins of the world. Not that the sins just, oh, where'd they go? They just vanished. It's not evaporation. Any sin that stood between me and God, he removed it. Any problem that existed between me and God, he solved it. Didn't get solved by itself. It was solved by a person who was our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word propitiation, expiation, stick with me right here. If you don't like all these details and things like that, okay, just, just you count this, the ceiling tiles for a few minutes right here, and I'll, be, I'll catch back up with you in two minutes. But in case you like this stuff, digging a little bit deeper. The Greek word, anyone know what the Greek word is for that? If you know that the midnight praises, okay, we say it in Coptic as well. It's close to it. It's hilastirion. Hilastirion. Repeat after me. Hilastirion. Hilastirion. Now you're experts, okay? Hilastirion is the word that is used to define in the Old Testament. It's, it's translated as mercy seat. In the New Testament, it's translated as propitiation or expiation. Let's read the definition of it. Relating to an appeasing or expiating. And I realized right there, just defined a word with a word. Okay? But what, anyone know what expiate means? It basically means it's not a spiritual word. It just means to fix what was broken, to make amends for. That, that's what it means, okay? to solve a problem. So again, the definition. Relating to an appeasing or expiating, having placating or expiating force. Placating is another word right there. Expiatory, a means of appeasing or expiating appropriation. Again, just means fixing what's broken. But here's the part that I wanted. This is all in the biblical, in the, in the, in the Bible uh, dictionary. It says, used of the cover of the ark of the covenant. So meaning that same word, used of the cover of the ark. In the holy of holies, which was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory victim on the annual day of atonement. This rite signifying that the life of the people, the loss of which they had merited by their sins, was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim, that God by this ceremony was appeased or their sins expiated, hence the lid of expiation. In other words, in case you don't care about anything that I just said, what that word teaches us is that the ark, which represented the law, the judgment, on top of it sat the mercy seat, which represented the grace of God. The mercy seat means that God sits on a throne of mercy, not on a throne of judgment. And it's not abracadabra mercy. It's rolled up his sleeves and said, you have a sin problem? I'll take it. You have an issue between you and God? I'll solve it. In other words, Jesus is our redeemer. He's the fixer, not the condemner. He's the restorer, not, unfortunately, as some of us think, the executioner. If we're honest, some of us, I talk about presence of God, presence of God, presence of God, and some of us, that thought that comes in our head is not a pleasant thought. We think of the presence of God like the presence of the principal. Like, uh-oh, getting called into the principal's office or the boss's office. Or yeah, come meet, it's like when we're driving and all of a sudden come into the presence of the police officer. No, thank you. If that was the case, if that's who God was, it would have been just the ark. It would have been just the ark. But thank God that there's something on top of the ark. And that's the throne of mercy. If God was just there as the principle, just to catch us doing something wrong, then it'd be easy. Ark of the covenant, everyone approach it, look inside. If you kept it, keep going. If you didn't, no soup for you. But that's not what he said. He said, put on top of that ark a mercy seat. 
and God went to great lengths. God went to great lengths. This is the important part. God went to great lengths to reveal that mercy and grace and forgiveness to us, even though we are the prime beneficiaries, not him. You know what it's like? I'm trying to think of like an analogy. And this is, is, is 0.0001%. This is the kid who runs away from home. And then the dad goes out and spends all night searching and looking for the kid. Why? It should be the kid searching to get back to the dad. It shouldn't be the dad looking for the kid. That's exactly what it means. Mercy seat, expiation, propitiation. That's what it means. It means that the kid was the one who made the mistake and ran away. And God is the one who did all the effort to bring him back, to restore him to his proper place. And the way it worked, okay, in case... You, you, you've never read the passage. We won't read it all, but it's a long passage about how it worked at this, at this Holy of Holies, at the Ark and at the Mercy Seat. There was one day a year where people, where only one person could enter this Holy of Holies. Who knows what the name of the day of the year is? Rosh Hashanah? No, that's the, that's the Jewish New Year. It's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Okay, very good. So it's, it's, it's sort of equivalent to, if you kind of looked at it, our Good Friday would be. Okay, the Day of Atonement. And only one person could enter into that holy of holies. Who was that one person? The high priest. So you had on the outer courtyard, everyone. And in the inner place, all the priests. But in the holy of holies, only the great high priest. Only one person could enter for one day a year. And we won't go into all the details, but there was an extensive ritual on this day where all the people had to be fasting. All the people had to be dressed in sackcloth. And then the high priest would come and there was, he had to dress a certain way. He had to wash a certain way. He had to offer a certain sacrifice. Like it was an all day event. Okay. Both pre and post going into the Holy of Holies. And I'll let you take a guess right here. If he messed up any part of the sequence, he was punished by death. Okay. That's an easy one. Do you know? That the people, okay, the high priest, when he would go into the, the Holy of Holies, no one could enter in there. Only the high priest. And the high priest, just so you know, it wasn't like one high priest. It wasn't like a, like a, a, um, like a king who was just till he died. It was like rotating. So I'm the high priest in 2023. And then next year, you were the high priest. So this is just, you're, you're going once in your lifetime, in essence. Okay, maybe, I don't know how the, the, the lots were drawn. But when the high priest went in there, even though there was another high priest who could, was in there last year, he couldn't go in this year. So anytime the high priest would go in, he would be dressed in an outfit. He would have a rope tied to his leg and bells all around his clothes. Why? Because they wanted bells, yeah, in case he died. In case he went in there, which people did, and had a heart attack, okay, or, 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 or panicked or whatever it may be, and they wanted the bells to know that he's moving, he's still alive. If the bells stopped, that means he's done. What do we do? Do we go in and get him? We pull them out, okay? Because nobody could go inside there, okay? God didn't mess around. But that was before Christ came. Then Christ came, the great high priest. St. Paul says it this way, Hebrews chapter 9. The passage is a little bit long, but it's so good. Just stick with me here. Just pay close attention. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
He's saying if the, if the, the blood of goats and calves was like, it solved a small problem, what about the blood of the Son of God? It goes on. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Question for you. What's the promise of eternal? What's that promise that you, uh, he says that we can receive? Christ came in, we can receive a promise. What's that promise? The promise isn't, as they thought in the Old Testament, a piece of land. That's the inheritance. Okay, give us that piece of land. It's our land. And to this day, there's still people fighting over a piece of land. It's not the land. That's not the eternal inheritance. It's not treasures and chests and diamonds or whatever it is. What's our inheritance? Even more than the kingdom of God. God himself. God is our inheritance. So like King David talks about it in the book of Psalms, I didn't bring the verse. He says, you, Lord, you're my portion. You're my inheritance. We don't want the house of God, the kingdom of God. Our promise is God himself. Oneness, communion, fellowship, or the word that I've been using since the beginning of the series, intimacy. That's how we were created. We were created to be one with God. No separation. Nothing between us. That death can't separate us. Life can't separate us. Sin can't separate us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the promise that was made to all of us. That was revealed to us by the great high priest Christ coming. That was foreshadowed to us in the mercy seat, foreshadowed and fulfilled in Christ, the great high priest who entered into that holy of holies. And he didn't just enter in himself and walk out. He entered himself and he left the door open. So no one has to stay outside. All of us can enter. That's why we always talk about the incarnation changed everything. The incarnation changed all the rules. Before the incarnation, you had barriers, you had walls, you had curtains, you had stuff that said, don't come in here. But through Christ's incarnation, all of us have gained access. And think about it this way. Let me paint it for you in a slightly different picture. Think about, okay, remember I told you the progression from the outer to the inner, from the outer to the inner, the outer courtyard, the sacrifice, the baptism, the priesthood, and then the Holy of Holies. Christ walked that same road, but he didn't walk in the same sequence. He walked in that sequence. Christ started in the Holy of Holies in heaven because he is light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created. And he in heaven. And then he opened the curtain and came down to be with us here on this earth. And he served in his, great, in his role as the priest of all mankind. And he shone his light and he fed all who needed feeding. And he prayed and interceded and was the mediator for all. And then he went public. What was Jesus' first act of public act? When Jesus came and he began his ministry, it began with what? When he went to visit John the Baptist and he visited and it was the, the baptism. And that's the first thing. Remember when you, when you come out of the, the gate or come out of the, 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 the tent, that's the bronze laver, the washing. And Jesus washed. And then ultimately, Jesus ended up on the bronze altar, a wooden altar of sacrifice. And what that wooden altar is what? The cross. And then after he did that, he went and opened the gate and said, now you can come in. So you see how Jesus walked this road? Every step, every step, every step from heaven to earth so that we could walk the other way. Said another way, 
The tabernacle is all about God coming close to man so man could come close to God. That's what the tabernacle is. It's all about the path from God to man. God opened the door from him to us, and now the path is open so that we can walk from us to him. Because there's never a time, thanks to Christ's coming, there's never a time. I know you, your experience may say otherwise, but the truth is there's never a time that you can't find God. I know it seems like you can't find him sometimes. I know it seems like he's a million miles away. But that's what the tabernacle is all about. Make that practical. You just lost your job. Don't know how you're going to make ends meet. Don't know how you're going to pay for whatever this month. God is with you. He's with you. He's there. He's there to guide you. He's there to support you. He's there to show you the way. He's there. You just got to find him there. You just got to go to him. You just broke up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever friend it may be. And you feel like it's the end of the world. My life will never go on. He's there. He's there to comfort you. He's there to support you. You got guilt. You got shame. Man, come on into the mercy seat. The door is wide open. You come through the offering and then the washing and then the consecration. But that door is wide open. The door is wide. You never have to be alone anymore. And in case you need a reminder of this. Last thing I want to leave you with. Jesus left us a visual reminder of everything that I'm saying as his final act, sort of, before he died. What was Jesus' final act before he died? There used to be something that represented the division between God and man. And Jesus' final act before he went down into Hades, final act is he ripped it in half. And that was what? The veil. There used to be a veil that stood between. Okay, by this time, you didn't have the tabernacle, you had the temple. Tabernacle was portable, temple was permanent, but it's the same structure. The only difference is everything became like supersized, okay? Just, the dimensions were very different. So by this time, you had in the holy place and in front of you, the holy of holies, and you had a big veil. How big was it right here? 20 feet wide by 60 feet high. Wait, maybe 60 this way or 20 this way? Anyway, 20 one way and 60 the other. No, 60 this way. Yeah, this way. 20 this way by 60 this way, four feet, no, sorry, four feet, four, four inches thick. The veil was four inches thick. That veil only had one purpose. It had one message, which it shouted out to everyone who saw it. Don't enter here. You're not welcome. You stay there. Do not enter. Exit only. No entry here. And Jesus' final act, Jesus' final act, he wasn't even in the room, but he controls all things in the palm of his hand. Died on the cross. Commend my spirit into your hands, Father. Oh, but before I go. And he ripped it in half. And you know, because it was so thick and big, the four inches, they tried to fix it. Many times they tried to fix it, but they couldn't. You can't, I mean, a four inches thick curtain. And that's why Jesus said, it is finished. I'm done. The veil has been torn. No one has to keep away from my presence anymore. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. We'll come back to that. The veil is his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
That's today's message. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why was the veil a type of his body? What's the connection between his body and the veil? A couple different things. First of all, his body, like the veil, hid the divinity. Okay, he was hiding the presence of God. Like his body was covering so that people couldn't, like he's a man. No, he's God, but he's got a body. The body hid it, just like the veil hid the presence of God. Also, his body was the connection between heaven and earth, man and God. The veil, like his body, was the only one on both sides. Like was the veil on the inside or on the outside? It was both. The veil could see the Holy of Holies. The veil could see the holy place. The veil, just like Jesus, one hand in heaven, one hand on earth. Fully God, fully man. And at the end of Jesus' life, the curtain was torn, the veil was torn, and Jesus was torn. Jesus was killed. Okay, And he was okay, not physically torn in half, but you understand the point. He was slaughtered. Okay, But through that, we can enter inside. So in other words, veil is torn. Instead of the do not enter sign, imagine a big sign that says, come on in. You don't have to stay outside anymore. I'm here and I got everything that you need. Like I said in the beginning, the answer to all your problems is now that that curtain is open. Now that the curtain is open, no one has to sit in darkness or despair or confusion because the curtain is open and all the answers are on the inside. No one has to live with guilt because the curtain is open. And now you see, you go straight to that mercy seat. You need grace. You need forgiveness. Whatever it is you got, you drink it from there. Most important, no one has to walk through life alone. You have a friend in Jesus who's willing to walk every single step of the way with you. And my prayer today, my prayer today as I was coming in is, God, there's got to be someone out there who just feels like they're going through life alone. And I prayed that God would wake that person up this morning and bring them here to church. So if you woke up this morning, okay, unexpectedly against your will, just so you know, I pray that every Sunday morning, that, okay, when I get up, I pray that God makes everyone else wake up as well because you should get to church early, okay? But today I prayed especially, God, you would send someone today who really needs to know that, that they're not alone, that you're walking with them. James chapter four, verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Imagine someone drowning in the ocean. That's sad. That's tragic. But you know what's much worse? Imagine someone drowning in the ocean 10 feet from a boat. That's us. It could be you. I hope it's not, but it could be. Before the veil was torn, yes, I get it. You couldn't get on the boat. You're just going to drown. I get it. But now, the door's open. You know, in the, in, the, in the tabernacle, the high priest was the only one who could go into the, the Holy of Holies, like I said. Only one person could go in only one day, and he could only go in for a few moments. You got in, you did your business, you got out as quickly as you could. But now, doors open, 24-7, middle of the night, anytime, doors open. Before entering the presence of God was fear and judgment. Now, it's grace and it's mercy. Before, the high priest had to do a lot of preparation to enter. What to wear, what to wash. Fast. It was a big production to enter in. Now, come as you are. No preparation needed. 
only thing you need is like that verse said, is a sincere desire to draw near to God. And that's my prayer for today as we wrap up this series. The tabernacle is all about intimacy with God, that thanks to his incarnation, his sacrifice is now available to all. The path has been laid out in front of us and no one ever has to say, I feel alone. No one ever has to say, I feel like I'm in darkness. No one ever has to say, I feel like I'm living in shame. The path has been open. And my prayer is that every single one of us would desire that intimacy and that depth. The outer courtyard was good. The inner was okay. It was a little bit better. But man, the good stuff, the deep stuff, that's on the inside. And my hope and prayer is that you will be desiring to enter there because I know God is desiring to draw you into there. Okay? Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your incarnation and for walking the road in front of us and opening the door for us to walk the same road back to you. Give us, Lord, a sincere desire to, to, to come and have fellowship with you, Lord. And for anyone today, Lord, who feels like they're all by themselves and, 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 and they feel like they're in despair and they feel like you're a million miles away, I pray, Lord, that you would draw near to them and you would draw them nearer to you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions of all your saints. Here it says, we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.